You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode. Our topic today is integrating faith and psychology, and our guest is Paul Deal. Yeah, and Paul is Assistant Professor of Counselor Education at State University of New York, Plattsburgh, and also author of the recent book with a few other folks, Bringing Spirituality and Religion into Counseling, a Model for Pluralist practice, which is a bit of a mouthful, but if you find this conversation interesting, I encourage you to pick up a copy of that if you want to do a bit of a nerd deep dive. And I mentioned this in the podcast, but Paul and I go way back. We've been friends for a long time, had lots of conversations around this, so hopefully you find it interesting as well. And the real important part of integrating these things and maybe the barriers to it, how it's difficult, but it's also very important. And just, I, I just, there were a ton of lights flashing in my mind as we were talking today. So I'm looking forward to the episode and hoping uh, you are too. All right. Without further ado. The idea is that we all have this thing called a self concept. Unconsciously, we tell ourselves the story of who we are. And that story draws the limits around what is allowed and not allowed of the self. I think Jung offers us a more viable pathway forward because he's saying integration is, is a possibility. Here is someone who's finding the pathway forward between religion, spirituality, and psychology that doesn't sort of say never the twain should meet. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Well, in full disclosure, I think we do have to start with the fact that, Paul, you and I, we go back. We go way back. And Indeed. we, so I just, I like to say that up front. I you guys got why. into legal trouble at the same time too, right? Isn't we, that what happened? <laughs> that that what, was for the, after. Is there a, rate, was... a rating on this podcast? <laughs> PG or R? I mean, what, what's the boundary? I should have asked that before we started. <laughs> and then nobody knew where you guys were for like a year or two. It's really, but. That's a different part of our journey. Yeah. We were in, we in the monastery. That's a different yeah. podcast. Yes. We yes, were yeah. doing <laughs> spiritual work. Okay, so I just wanted to, I wanted to say that, in case that comes up later, just so it doesn't feel off if I bring up something personal about you that I know, but, uh, or, or vice versa. Let's start with this question, though. What led you to want to spend your life studying the intersection of, of spirituality and psychology? Yeah, geez. I mean, this, this much of my life anyway. We'll see what lies ahead. 
You know, I was I was thinking about that question a, a little bit, and a sort of really unsatisfying answer came into my mind at first, which was, you know, I have I have no idea, and then I thought, well, okay, it must be karma, and that didn't quite feel satisfying either. So I, I the next thing that popped into my head really was uh, an experience that I had. I don't know, probably as like a maybe a nine or ten year old. I remember we were driving home from the uh, Congregational Church in New England. I think it was a fall day. It felt like a fall day in my memory anyway. And and Pastor Crichton, who was an Anglican from the UK, his British accent helped me stay awake during the, the sermons. He said something uh, along the lines of how God had no beginning or end. And in my nine or 10-year-old brain, I, I think that was one of my earliest experiences of feeling baffled. <laughs> kind of kind of like in a stimulating like playful way like um like i just brushed up against the edge of some sort of mystery that i didn't know really existed before that and driving home uh i was sort of i was in the passenger seat i remember looking out the window at the forest sort of awash in the in the you know still somewhat early morning sunlight and just feeling like this 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 bafflement sort of growing and growing, you know, and I don't think I would have used this language then, obviously, but, you know, it's like something either got into my bones in that moment or was awoken in me. And that's really been a sort of animating, I don't know, feeling, question, drive ever, ever since then. And I think the two ways I've opted to explore that feeling of bafflement and mystery and wonder have been through psychology on the one hand, which you know has a lot of strengths in terms of its descriptive abilities to describe and understand human phenomena, and then religion and spirituality, which you know I think is you know I, I see it as sort of complementing that psychology in a way where it's it's still very conversant with the wonder and the and the mystery. But it, it's a it's a little bit more prescriptive in terms of sort of saying what humans are for, and you know what a full life might look like um, within community, and and so yeah, I think I think that's really where I have to start. It was this experience where I was just sort of hooked by the wonder, so to speak. Well, you talk about those kind of going hand in hand, psychology and and spirituality, religion. In, in a in sort of an integrative way for you, but I think historically, mm-hmm. at least I would just say not historically, because I don't think that's necessarily true. In in my say in the past thirty years within the tradition I grew up, mental mm-hmm. health and faith were almost seen at odds. Like they weren't, mm-hmm. they didn't play nice together. It was sort of like you could choose one or the other. You could kind of go to counseling and. Uh, think about mental health and think about emotional awareness and, um, and emotional health, or you could like have faith in Jesus. And mm-hmm. doing both of those things at the same time didn't seem to jive. And even not to interrupt, but before you get to this, Paul, but e- there are elements of uh, you know Christian counseling that amount to religious catechizing, really. And if and mm-hmm. if you get the theology, if you get the thinking right, the problems go away. So, yeah, they're, they're sort of at odds, aren't they? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. or they, they have a, an uneasy relationship where one encroaches on the other or vice versa, like what Pete was saying. So, how, in your experience, you know, kind of starting with this seems like this journey where they were 
in harmony in your life and you, and you kind of walked that road. How, how do you mm-hmm. see that relationship? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a good question. And I, and I, I'd love to hear more about what the two of you did experience in terms of that inner relationship as well. But I think, I think just to start where your question takes, takes me is, you know, coming up within sort of a mixture of the, you know, like some Calvinist influence from my dad and then some, some Baptist influence from, from different college environments. And then the Jesuits, you know, like this whole sort of hodgepodge of influences, definitely not a very, uh, purist theologian in that sense but it sounds like you need a therapist actually yeah yeah i mean you guys free after this (laughs) yeah Yeah, i won't help you but yeah sure i'll take your money you just offer your presence presence. i could do that (laughs) keep your eyes open too that helps um but i would i would say that yeah they, they did start off more integrated but interestingly enough i think as i grew up inside of religion and spirituality that sort of organic harmony started to to fray a little bit and i'm trying to think about what did that you know i i think it it might have been and i'm not sure how much to blame religion or if this is just a human thing but I think what started to happen there is that this this sense of the wondrous, all powerful sort of omniscient, omnipotent, you know the you know the spiel, divinity that was somehow out there and above wasn't fitting with what I sort of experienced on that drive home as a kid, staring at the forest and staring at nature or sitting in nature. It, they started to sort of become splintered in in a way. I guess you could say, if we're going to put some clunky terms on this, right, like transcendence and imminence or the beyond and the here and now started to be um, unhinged from each other in a way that, that wasn't particularly helpful. And, and what happened along with that was this, maybe this idea that happiness or wellness or well-being or, you know, the different sorts of terms that um, mental, mental health counseling are often trying to pursue and I, I guess you could say, like, I think about what, what religion is trying to pursue and some of its ultimate aims in the Christian tradition, we might call that salvation or something like that. The chasm between salvation and wellness in the here and now started to expand. And like I said, I'm not sure how much to blame religion or if that's just a developmental thing, you know, where as a kid, I'm learning about God, I'm still kind of black and white, you know, but it seemed like when when there was a shift from this organic experiential um, presence I felt and to the point where I had to start conceptualizing it, that in the conceptualization, the dichotomy started to open up between, you know, you know, God in nature or spirit and matter or, you know, I don't know, spirit and flesh, however you want to sort of talk about it, um, God and man. And and that sort of drove psychology and, and religion and spirituality further apart as well. Um, and then it's been a sort of slow, slow and intentional journey of putting those back together and really seeing how they they complement each other. If I can put it this way, Paul, if, if this is what you're saying, that mm-hmm. you just had experiences that made those theological religious categories difficult to 
make any sense. Yeah, like they're maybe a little out of alignment or something okay. like that. So they're not aligning, and so they start separating, but then you started thinking maybe synthetically about how how they're connected. Is that where we're going? Yeah, yeah. And you say, you know, you say not accounts of that, but those are two pretty good paraphrases. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm... <laughs> I I think it's it's you know I'm just thinking about it off off the top of my head but you know at some point along the way there because of the type of religious teaching that I experienced the message was something along the lines of you know either implicitly or explicitly that compartmentalization is is your best option and so, in, in other words, this thing you want to call sin or, you know, whatever else that associates with, it's best to suppress it or just let go and let God or, you know, give it over, right? A lot of those cliches start to come to mind here in terms of, in terms of my experience. And there, there wasn't really a viable pathway where someone said, so all this human messiness stuff, that that comes with being thrown into a human incarnation and, and and having a human life is actually the material of salvation of awakening of of grace and you know that that material is in fact your teacher and you can pay attention to it you can learn from it you can integrate it that it it will be painful it will break you open at times and reframe your sense of what god is or what reality is or what it means to be, you know, in relationship with others, but that, like, you know, this is sort of a, a Richard Rohr thing, right? There's no remainder is this sort of idea. There doesn't have to be a, a remainder. There's there's room for everything in that integration process. And psychology, sometimes we call this the shadow, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the things I like about the, the Gnostics in particular is because they seem to be a little more inclined to want to work with shadow, what I think of as like a psycho-spiritual approach rather than a traditional, like, biblical hermeneutic. And I'm out of my depths now. I said hermeneutic. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, there's sort of the psycho-spiritual sense where I think, you know, in the Gnostic Gospels, maybe the Gospel of Thomas it was, Jesus said something like, you know, if you, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you don't bring it forth, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. And that's really the bridge for me to see how psychology and spirituality and religion can, can really work together insofar as they can bring forth what is within us. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, yeah. It makes yeah. A lot of sense. yeah. It's interesting because we see these impulse, I feel like in some ways those the Gnostic Gospels Gospel of Thomas and other of these writings, we see these impulses maybe in the New Testament, but they're not fully mm-hmm. fleshed out. And so, you kind of, they're ambiguous. And so, you can take it one way or you can take it another way. Like, there's a way mm-hmm. to read Paul, for instance, where it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's this sort of, mm-hmm. it, it, you have the resources within you to contribute to the world and to be whole and to be well. And then you could read Paul to say, there's nothing good in you and you need <laughs> Jesus and mm-hmm. that's all the good that you have comes from Jesus. It's like, well, which is right. it? And so there's these different traditions. Is that one way in which this this split between mental health and and faith happens is if we read Paul in a way that divorces those things, then we're going to lead to thinking that 
when psychology, I remember growing up hearing this phrase a lot, psychobabble, right? Mm, that whenever yeah. psychology says that you have these resources within you, that is, that is psychobabble. That is secularism, right. whatever the term we wanted to use. Denying. Mm. But when you say, I am not good at all, and I can get better only when I accept that I'm not good and that Jesus is all the good that it will ever come into my life, then that's like the path to true healing. But there is, I just want to name, like, it may be mm-hmm. very explicit in the Gospel of Thomas, but I think there is this sense in which it's there in the New Testament as well, but it's maybe harder to, to parse out. Is that making sense? Yeah. Uh, can, totally. I, can I add something yeah. to that, Paul? Because I think interrupting no, I, because we're having a conversation here, Jared. Do you know what a conversation <laughs> is? A conversation is when I talk whenever I want to. That's what a conversation is. What do you think of that, Paul? The spirit's moving now. There's something that you said before, and then Jared responded, and I'm putting a piece together. I'm just throwing it out there. Mm. You said something very helpful, and that's intuitively true. That the messiness is the teacher. Mm. I think you know Jared is quoting something from Paul about. Christ in us, I think that's a little bit different, in my opinion, because that's still Christ in you. But you're saying something different. Your your approach is very integrative, like all of us, every every part of us, unless we're mm-hmm. pathological, I'm assuming, but you know, every part of us moves us towards healing, towards wholeness, um, which, you know, there are other people who talk like that. It's 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 making more sense to me, uh, you know, the older I get and think about these things. But, you know, who we are is fine and good, and that the insights don't need to come from read the psalm again, which mm-hmm. is some things that I've heard in my life and others have heard too. Yeah, same. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe in, in, in one sort of intersection – between that insight, the messiness is the teacher, is how – I'm asking rhetorically at this point, we'd have to get into this, but how does a view of the divine – how can we conceive of the divine that works with that, so to speak? That it's not an either-or, it's not two sides and you have to choose one, mm-hmm. but Maybe, you know, in, in, in more traditional, maybe Christian language, the presence of God in your messiness and working in it and through it. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really the, that's really the, the journey to say something sort of played out. But I mean, that's, been, that's the journey of a lifetime. And, and I, you know, as I was listening, the, the distinction you drew, I think maybe there's even a, a bridge between that and, in terms of how I think about it. But this idea that the messiness is the teacher on the one hand and Christ in us in the other hand, and this is more of a psycho-spiritual framing, but Christ in me is the space from which I can approach the messiness without shame, without self-condemnation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a Buddhist, you might call it Buddha mind. You know, if you're a Hindu, you might call it Atman, right? There's different terms. If you're a Jungian, you might call it capital S, self. But there's these different terms that are both sort of, you know, you could say innate potentials that exist within us and outside of us as part of the communion of saints, so to speak, that we can tap into and, and access um, and, and learn from. And I, I, you know, even in hearing myself say this, I know this is a, a dangerous territory because I can think back to some of the earlier 
conversations or things I heard about, okay, well, you have to be dangerous there about getting puffed up. You know, I mean, you have to be careful there about becoming puffed up or too um, confident in your own abilities. And I, I think that fear that, you know, sometimes come out of certain types of religious or spiritual traditions Mm -hmm. about going inward, you know, it's in, in some ways it's, it's, it's fair. It's, it's well, it's well founded. Um, You know, there's such a thing as a lot of navel gazing psychotherapy that, that doesn't successfully turn its gaze outward. Um, (laughs) And yet at the same time, I think that, that, that fear is, goes back to the uh, being taught a theology that says there's no that the shit there's nothing good in the shadow where mm-hmm. in the psychospiritual literature it says there's gold in the shadow in fact you need to um, find the courage ask for the courage develop a community that can help you sort of integrate that stuff from time to time because when it's not and I can tell you this from having worked as a a psychotherapist in various um, religious and spiritual environments, when it's not integrated, it erupts. It erupts in an affair. It erupts in, you know, substance abuse. It erupts in all sorts of things. So, the the alter the alternative to integrate is is difficult. Can we get really practical with that language, Paul? Because I think that's yeah, a really yeah. good point about being able to integrate mm-hmm. the shadow. And that, mm-hmm. those are those are conceptual terms, but for practical people, like I really appreciate how you got real. Like, no, it can erupt in not abstract things. It can erupt in you know uh, disruptions in relationship and substance mm-hmm. abuse and these kinds of things. So when we talk in shadow, what are we talking? So you know, this was this was sort of a you know just a, a quick primer. Um, Freud originally thought of the the unconscious as just this cauldron of sort of seething instinctual animal-like tendencies and the the cost of living in a society was learning how to sort of in large part you know i don't know about repress but sort of like come to terms with the fact that you need to develop a super ego strong enough to sort of say no to those things and put them in perspective and sort of draw boundaries and learn when it's okay to express an urge and not to Jung came along and this is a big part why and i'm speaking of carl Jung here you know, the, the Swiss-Austrian psychoanalyst, he, he came along and sort of said, okay, I think you, Freud's conception of the shadow is, is a bit too depraved. And he sort of said the shadow is actually just this place where all this underdeveloped, immature stuff lives. It's not necessarily negative. It's not inherently bad. What makes it, quote-unquote, bad is that it's immature, you know, and it's in the task, the journey of life is to learn how to mature it. And how do you mature it? You bring it into conscious awareness so you can learn how to work with it. Mm-hmm. And and so Young, I think Young offers us a more viable pathway forward because he's saying, you know, integration is is a possibility. And there's a reason why, you know, a lot of the Jesuits I studied with in my in my degree were Jungians because I think they were intuiting here is someone who's finding the pathway forward between religion, spirituality, and, and psychology that, that doesn't sort of say, you know, never the twain should meet. They're just different, you know, different schools of thought mm-hmm. and we're sort of stuck with that. So well, I don't know if that, if that clarifies it. Well, um, I just want to clarify when you say the shadow though, like it could be as simple as I, 
am, am, I'm extremely angry at my yep. at my mom for this thing that I've sort of inherited as a pattern. But instead of being able to bring that to consciousness and name it and to work with it, I pretend it doesn't exist because in my tradition to be angry at my mom is like this mortal sin. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even acknowledge it because it means I'm a horrible human being and then shame comes in and all that. Is that yeah, an example? It's a, a great example, yeah. The idea is that we all have this thing called a self-concept. Unconsciously, we tell ourselves the story of who we are. And that story draws the limits around what is allowed and not allowed of the self. And if anger by your religious, spiritual tradition, or even just your family culture, whatever it is, is considered outside the self-concept, it would then have to be repressed and you would never develop skillfulness around it. But I think it's important to note there's also something called the golden shadow where we may also, because of our conditioning, family, culture, or otherwise, repress and push away. You know, the emphasis on, emphasis on golden, I guess, is like there's these really positive attributes. So you might have someone because of their early childhood that learned that it was never, it was never safe to let them be loved, to let their guard down, to experience vulnerability and intimacy. And so later on in life, they, they really push that stuff away. They keep their guard up and, and their journey for them is, is similar, but it's working with this golden shadow aspect of, okay, how do I learn how to let myself be loved in certain circumstances where that's, where that's safe and I can take the risk for fuller life with this person or in this community so the shadow is really it's it's dynamic. It's yeah. it's not just the anger. It's also these sort of you know bright qualities, so to speak. We're complicated people, aren't we? You know we um, something you said before, Paul, about Jung and how he said that Freud's idea of the shadow was too depraved. Yeah. And you know right away Christian language comes to mind. And you know if I'm and this, this just may help people get attached to it. This is. Maybe Jung uh, reacting. I, I, as I recall, I don't. I know very little about Jung in terms of you know professionally, but I seem to recall that his father was a Calvinist minister and his uncles were, and it was sort of in the family. And he just found that to be all too depressing and not really helping to explain people, right? So I, I just think the word depraved that may have been your word. But it may have been something that maybe Jung was thinking as well, that this is, this is a really dark – this is almost – Freud's too Calvinistic. And again, I'm not, it's, pick, it's I'm ironic, not picking on it? Calvinists yeah. here. I'm, not, I'm yeah. really not because, you know, I'm, I'm really, really not. But um, it, it's that, that utter darkness and uselessness of our interiority or of our interior world has proved not to be helpful for people and how they think about themselves – and the people around them and their place on this earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe Jung is getting to some of those things. Again, that's somebody that I don't really understand. I wish I knew him better. But, um, and that's language. I mean, that I think, you know, in other words, maybe something like total depravity. Every aspect of you is depraved. Depraved is a very strong word. Um, from a psychological point of view, it's hard to it's hard to have an integrative approach to faith and mental health when the theology says your inner world is just a dark place and it needs to be pushed down, confessed or just ignored 
but not to see what lessons can be learned from the stuff that's happening inside of you. You don't want to talk to anybody about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I and I've had clients that, upon being invited to to reframe that total depravity, um, have really resisted it, despite the depression. You know, I guess that that's what I'd call you know depravity from a psychological perspective. Maybe a deep depression where there's just constant thoughts of worthlessness, mm-hmm. and I'm easy to reject, and there's no point putting myself out there. You know, and the lethargy and and lack of uh, pleasurable experience that comes with that. And so it when it gets deeply ingrained, and this is sort of I guess bleeding into this territory, which is. I think also really complex in, in, in the psychology field or pastoral counseling field is, you know, how do we as pastoral counselors adjudicate between what counts as healthy and unhealthy religion and spirituality, um, given mm-hmm. that sometimes what a client comes in with is not just their own religion and spirituality, but that, that's that been a conditioned thing that their religious or spiritual subgroup teaches every week or a version of it, right? And so mm-hmm. you, you, you don't work with the client by challenging or undermining the, the very teaching of their religious subculture, yeah. at least not right away. <laughs> um, there's a lot of work before that, but it's, mm-hmm. but it's hard. I think it's a, it's a great point. And when that really gets in someone's bones, it can be a hard thing to shed. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Well, one, I mean, one very quick anecdote. Again, I only say this maybe if people can relate to it. When one of my children years ago was in a therapeutic context in, in, her, in her teens, and um, mm. she was beating herself up for not being good enough. And mm-hmm. one of uh, the therapists mentioned to her that you believe in God, don't you? And she said, yeah. And he says, don't you know that you're of eternal worth? And I still get emotional thinking about that because she had mm-hmm. been in church her whole life and never once heard that. Mm-hmm. And that has to do, again, with it's not like the problem of religion and psychology. It's the, the, the problem that some theologies might cause in integrating those two things. And for those theologies to survive, you have to keep them separate, I think. I don't know, Jared, yeah. if you agree with that, but you have to. They simply don't play well together unless the psychology side of it is tamed and, 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 and adjusted in such a way that it can serve the theology instead of maybe, dare I say, critiquing it, which is a no-no, Jared, right? In our right. World, that's where we came from. That's just, you, you don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I think the – and, and what maybe to tie those two together, Paul, what kind of you were saying uh, a second ago is when is it the when is it that the theology is elastic enough to contain some of these insights from from psychology and things that we're learning? Right, we do this all the time with say science. When is the theology elastic enough to say, you know what, we've kind of garnered enough evidence to say evolution is true, and so we got to kind of shift and resize this theology to fit it. And when is it just not going to work? And we actually just have to reject this thing. Mm -hmm. And I just think a lot of people are in that place of wondering, can my theology, my reading of the Bible, the reading of Jesus, this whole Christianity thing, can it be resized in a way that will accept what seems true to me living in our day and age about the human mind, what, what leads us to flourish, or can it not? And and it sounds like, you know, as pastoral counselors, you guys, you have to kind of figure that out on the fly almost in these settings of when are we critiquing the system or when are we able to ad- maybe adjust kind of the expectations? Well, well said. And there is some some literature that helps guide that. You know, um, for example, there's there's some constructs that, that talk about assessing a person's religion and spirituality and when it looks like they're in a place of what is called like religious or spiritual conservation versus religious or spiritual mm-hmm. transformation. And so in the former, it's where the life issue has not sufficiently started to cause the foundations of the person's theology and religious identity to break apart. In other words, the religion of spirituality is still mostly working. It's able to help them, con- you know, it's called religious conservation in the sense that it's still effective at helping them conserve a sense of meaning. And so the intervention in those cases is often to ask the client, for example, you know, like, is there a, is there a scripture here that comes to mind that really feeds you and that may be helpful in this moment? And, and then still we may need to assess, like, if they bring up a scripture that's supposed to, 
you know, like validate the fact that they are beloved by the divine and then they bring up, you know, something from Job or something, <laughs> we still want to maybe do some sort of assessing there to find out like, okay, I wonder why they chose that particular text in that moment. And in the case of spiritual religious transformation, that's where there's evidence that the religious meaning-making system is, is breaking down. It's not working anymore. And sometimes we call that they're entering a psycho-spiritual crisis. And those moments are always really exciting for me. And I don't mean that in a flippant way, but because that's that moment where the person gets to sort of step outside of their theology back into the terror and wonder of being a human and start to construct something anew. You know, I, I've committed that the, I think it's the final line in, in Tillich's courage to be, because it so resonates on this matter. That's you know, the, Paul Tillich, right? Yeah. Paul, yeah. The theologian. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah the, the courage to be is rooted in the God who appears after God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt. And that there may be, you know, throughout a lifetime, the death of numerous God concepts over time, but it takes a really safe holding space for a client to enter into that. It's a sacred space where, you know, in a collaborative way, something new is being born in the client. It's often very painful and filled with yeah. a lot of anxiety. And it's, yeah. Well, the anxiety is, I mean, that's... Again, not to be simplistic, but, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have people in our lives, and Jared and I understand this existentially as well, that that transformative place, mm -hmm. that crisis place, I guess, that stepping away from what you know and what you believe into this exciting world where you have no idea, and, <laughs> and yeah. you're still going to reinvent yourself, the whole purpose of true religious faith is to make sure that never happens. Right. So, I mean, that's the tension I think people feel with that, that even being in a space where you embrace this, I guess we're talking about maybe disorientation or deconstruction. That's language that people might know better. I don't know if, that, if you're comfortable using that language, but mm -hmm. that is like you have to have a certain religious structure that allows that to happen. Maybe the only way to do it is just to be thrown into it. You know, and and sort of sink or swim. I don't know, but my point is that there are there are barriers for people that are theological, but they're also, I guess, psychological in that sense. Both sides are affected. That makes it very difficult to look positively at this wonderful yet also frightening time of transformation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I think that's really fair, you know, whether it's from a psychological or a theological framework, it's it, just the experience of being alive to that, to that edge of, you know, and I think back to what you said, Jared, about support in the New Testament, you know, the verse that comes to mind for me is, I think it's John 10, 10, I come that they may have life and life to the fullest. And like you said, that could be interpreted in two different ways, right? But if we're interpreting it in terms of life to the fullest in the here and now, I think of this sense of aliveness. And it takes a lot of resources to be present to that aliveness. And it's it's a living faith, which is riding that that edge where life is about learning and growth. And I'm, I know anytime I start talking like this, I'm immediately aware of immense privilege that goes goes into being able to talk like this, right? None of yeah. us here are in survival mode. Yeah. Our, our material needs are met. We've been blessed in a lot of ways in that way, or maybe lucky, or if you want to think about it. But yeah, I, I think, you know, it's 
there's a lot of resistance to that. And it's, it's just, I think, a human thing, right? This is scary. This is, this is hard. But if we have a framework that says, no, this is actually the journey, it gets a little easier, right? It gets just a little bit easier to say, oh, wait, other people have tread this path too. I'm a good company. Yeah. Well, I want to come back, Paul, to this idea that this elasticity idea of how how can people who you know what are ways that you've seen for people who want to continue down their faith tradition they want to continue to be Christian and yet they need to make room for things like it's okay to work on your shadow side it's okay not to think of yourself as innately evil and you know that you can be good in our core as human beings and yet still have things to work on and and enter into that messiness like what are some what are some steps or processes or ways of thinking or concepts that you've seen that help people step into that without it, what we've seen is sometimes it feels like a betrayal like they're almost cheating on their christianity by entertaining well, adultery. these it's psychological adultery, right? yeah. insights and how can you how do people maybe move beyond that yeah I'm hearing myself sigh just processing that question. I mean, that's such a such an important one. And I think there's a lot of different things I can say, but the, the thing that's sort of come to the forefront of my mind is actually that in order for it to really take to be something that doesn't just park in the mind, it actually translates into the heart and the body, I think it has to be experienced. Um, it has to be felt. And, you know, for me, that's where something like a practice, you know, Christianity calls it a prayer life or contemplative practices. Other traditions call it meditation. And, and that I think th- th- those are perhaps spaces where a, a person by becoming still, and, there, you know, there's, there's certain persons that, let's say, like with a real serious chronic depression, right? Maybe that, that stillness would be contraindicated because there's going to just be an onslaught of negative self-talk or, you know, if the tradition I'd even call it like demonic voices or something like that. So, so it's not, it's not for everyone, but I, I, I do feel very strongly about the sense that it, it needs to be experienced and, and maybe what helps that happen is to first experience it with another, with another mm-hmm. human being. Because there's a lot of clients, and this goes back to a lot of theory around attachment, folks who are, quote unquote, like like they say, you can be insecurely attached. So in other words, there's not this sort of basic internalization of of safety and co-regulation in your being that that a young infant learns. And, you know, more and more we're learning that the, the primacy of early development is really key. Everything gets built on that foundation of what's happening in your own nervous system and your neural pathways. And if that space is charged with anxiety and tension, fear and betrayal and abandonment, it doesn't matter what you learn intellectually about that God, what your God concept is. The God image, the God that lives in your being is not a safe God. You know, and there's a lot of theory that talks about how the, you know, the mom and dad or whoever our caregivers are sort of like the first quote unquote gods of our lives. And we internalize our ways of relating and perceiving the divine through that imprinting, through those attachment bonds. But I think where the therapy relationship can be powerful 
or you know, with a with a pastor or a mentor or whoever it is. But it comes back to this idea of like presence and unconditional positive regard. We call it in the psychology field. You know, in Christianity, you might call it unconditional love. And and I think those are sort of high flutin' terms. So maybe an easier way to say it is. If, if if someone gets to experience the gift of sitting with someone that needs absolutely nothing from them, doesn't do, doesn't even think that they're smart or talented or good looking or special, but just has this presence that they can offer for whatever depths or degrees of human messiness might might show up and can get their own stuff out of the way enough because there's always stuff that's going to come up as you're sitting with someone. But to sort of see it when it comes up, sort of bracket it and say, okay, well, I know what that is. That's my own ego needing this or that or the other. How do I come back to this presence with this person? I, th- I think it's in that dyadic interpersonal relationship where that experience of, of love becomes internalized. And that might be the birth of, of a divine love that was missing. Mm-hmm. I, I've been. I, don't, I wanted to test this with you because lately I've been thinking of it as kind of uh, the unconditional okayness. Like the what I want to offer people when I sit with them is just an okayness. Hey, so when they tell me their shocking, shame-filled, deep thoughts, I'm like, okay. When they, you know, tell me these sorts of things, it's like, okay, like just to offer a space where they, they're what they expect from another human being to hear these things that they've built up in their heads and to have someone say, yeah, you know, probably lots, I've had same thoughts or yeah, it seems pretty normal to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Can just be a really powerful thing because yeah. Yeah. I I think for me, the okayness of it, because I also don't like to over aggrandize it, I guess, where it's like, you have to think that like, I have to sit here and lie to you and say, you're the best human being in the world. (laughs) When you have trouble, you have shadow, like, because in some ways I, I call it positive gaslighting. Again, this is me just making up psychological terms. But when it's like, when it's like you're trying to overly inflate someone and they just, you're, you're kind of asking them to go against their own intuitions, which is like, no, you kind of are a shitty person sometimes. Like you do kind of bad things sometimes, right? Not, so being able to say like, I guess for me, it's it's not an over-aggrandizing because then that also can neglect the shadow side in the opposite way. And so, to kind of have a, a more neutral sense of, you're okay, like, and maybe that's what you mean by positive regard. Maybe that's kind of the psychological framework of, it's not that you're great and perfect. It's not that you're horrible and would outside of redemption it's that you're like me, which means we're okay. <laughs> you're human. <laughs> you're human. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a long way of saying that. I, I, I like that. I think it really, I think it fits. And, and, and a little bit of the, you know, the positive regard is sort of like, it's, it's a way of being or relating to the other person. So mm-hmm. I'm going to regard you in a, in a positive way. Radical acceptance, radical compassion, you know, unconditional okayness. These are all terms we could, we could put on that. And if you don't validate the shitty side, as you said, it doesn't work, <laughs> ironically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For a lot of a lot of people, they'd be like, "Oh, you're just you're just brushing past that." Like, it's got to be a both and, right? To both sort of say, like, "Wow, that's like that's some heavy, intense stuff." And welcome to the club.
Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Yeah. Well, while we were, um, you know, we're talking about practical kinds of steps or outlooks to this. Um, and, you know, both of you were talking about sitting with somebody else, with other people, which I really agree with very strongly. And uh, it's sort of like you see God in other people. But when you're conditioned to just sort of pray it away, so to speak, in isolation, and sometimes talking to another human being is like the hardest thing you could possibly ever right. do. Because that's, that's actually, now you're voicing the betrayal. Once, when you keep it inside, there's a hope that no one will find out. No other, you can keep it hidden from everyone. But I'm just saying this as an observation, that it's that first step is very, very difficult for some people to make because that is exactly the evidence that they're going off the deep end and they're beyond hope. Mm. So they keep it inside and have cognitive dissonance or, or like you said, Paul, it sort of erupts in different ways. Yeah. yeah. Or the idea that it's not real unless you say it. Right. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, the question is how do you get to a point where you feel comfortable 
actually talking to somebody else? And I really am asking that rhetorically unless you want to feel you can answer. I think that's a hard question to answer. Like, it's almost like you have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you just, I just have to do something. It doesn't matter what it is. So maybe, you know, a private thing with a therapist, for example, or a spiritual advisor where they don't know you, that may be one way to do it. You know, it's professional and and nobody has confidential. to know that. Confidential. Confidential, yeah. right, as mm-hmm. opposed to talking to one of your buddies at church or something. Yeah. I mean, the thing or what I found myself saying to classes at times, and I think I actually believe this, even just based on my own life experience, like it's been you know, my sense is that most of us go kicking and screaming, right? You know, it took four deaths in a matter of five years. You know, this is after getting a mm-hmm. PhD in pastoral counseling to get me back into counseling where I was really willing to like look at some of the oldest stuff that I'd, you know, some of which I'd forgotten. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it, it takes a point where the the suffering of avoidance starts to outweigh the suffering of facing yes. it. That's well put. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that comes for us in all different forms. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it could be a panic attack, could be losing a job, it could be an explosion of various symptoms, you know, relationship problems. And again, these are the, these are the teachers. If we can, if we can listen and have a framework that says this isn't just sin or persecution or, you know, that this, this is actually part of the path. And not to be the the Sunday school teacher to kind of bring this back around for the Bible for normal people, but I guess what I want to say, and, and Paul, I'd appreciate your insight on this, but the way we've been talking the last whatever half hour, 40 minutes, it's like I can, I can imagine the critics from my childhood of like, well, they didn't even talk about the Bible. They didn't talk about you know, Jesus in this. And so, how are we even talking about this being Christian in any, in any significant way? And I think for me, it comes back to what we do here on this podcast. You know, what is the Bible? What do we do with it? The Bible was written in a context where this was not the language or insights that were used or had been discovered yet, or we didn't have this language. And so, that doesn't mean that the Bible is irrelevant to it, but it does mean that we might need to infuse the Bible with new ways of understanding and taking things like, I appreciate what you said about John 10.10. There is a way to infuse John 10.10 with a more contemporary, robust understanding of psychological significance. And, and so, it's, it's, it takes work, but every generation has to do that work anew. And so, I just think it's not, again, that impulse of thinking these as separate things doesn't have to be the case. There is a way then to go to take all these insights and to learn from them and grow in them, and then to go back to the Bible and say, you know what? There's a way of reading this that actually gives me life now. And sometimes we're too close to it to see it that way. We either want to reject it, you know, because it represents a painful past, or we just stay within the framework of it has to mean this one thing. So I don't know if you found that with with clients or just in your experiences, is this isn't apart from the Bible. There is a way to breathe new life into it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. But you, you do have to be really careful with that. It's sort of a timing and dosage thing and find ways in. And I, I find it to be incredibly difficult with certain types of clients. Um, there's a lot of patience involved in, in the process. And, you know, I, as I was listening, part of what came to mind, and I don't know if this is from, I was 
thinking about um, one of the books of yours, Pete, I read a while ago. I gave it to my dad, so I don't remember what it was called now, but it had a yellow t- uh, yellow cover. The Bible tells me so, or um, I think, yeah. Yeah, the, but the, the yellow one, that's how I refer to my book. <laughs> yeah, my titles are too long. The, so the, the yellow, bright, yellow one. But anyway, I think part of, you know, what it came to mind as I was listening to you talk, Jared, because I, I feel like one of the things important I took away from that that book that I, I hadn't considered really before is is that, and maybe you didn't say the speed, maybe it's just what I projected onto it or needed to hear uh, or needed to think to keep moving forward myself was that like, yes, the, the, the words of the biblical texts sort of are finished and entombed in that book we all carry around with us, but, but the Bible is still happening, right? In a way, or, or the, the gospel is still, still happening in a way, maybe that the living word is that we are still the people of, of God living out this constantly unfolding sort of narrative and all that messiness and mm-hmm. redemption. And I think, you know, that, that's, that's a really heretical idea, I imagine in, in certain circles. And I, and I don't, I don't know a way around that other than yeah. hoping that maybe some part of uh, a person has fertile soil where those, those seeds might like, hold at some point? I mean, there, there are so many, I think, uh, interesting and life-giving and dynamic ways of integrating, you know, our emotional lives and our religious theological lives, provided you're open to the idea of integrating those two in a meaningful way, and maybe even in a creative way. And the the struggle, I think, is that there are I think there are some people who desperately want to do that, but they're in a place where, again, the very integration is the problem. And I, I think it's it's hard to get around that. And, and, you know, I can think of people and, you know, how'd you get to the point where you decided to sort of step from, you know, a conservation mode and sort of embrace this transformation mode. And very often they don't really have a good answer, and that's fine. They just woke up one morning and they said it makes sense, you know. So it, it might take people their own time and place to get to that place, you know, where that fertile soil starts blooming a bit. And um, but many don't, you know, and and you can't force it, I guess. But there are, there are many who deep down probably feel stuck a bit, and they they don't know which way to go. And there's there's no formula to make that work quickly if your religious life has shielded you from even paying attention to that sort of thing. The power of religion, you know, it really is. It's Well, you know, I mean, just not just religion, but I think any ideology. Any ideology can keep you from looking at the shadow, if that's one way of summarizing a lot of this stuff. So, And that's the religion that to be fair, Freud was attacking. Yes, right, right. Right, he wasn't attacking this other stuff we're talking about. He was sort of close to it, too, because he had his own baggage he hadn't sorted out. Um, but, you know, that's what he was attacking, and Nietzsche was attacking, and Marx was yes. attacking. All mm-hmm. folks. So, for, for those who, kind of as we wrap up our time, Paul, for those who have this tension within them what what might be a just kind of a first step or a few kind of thoughts on on how to dip their toes into a world where they don't have to hold this tension anymore giving them a little bit of a a leg up on on a few things that might help yeah 
Um, I mean, maybe this is coming to mind just because of where our conversation has been uh, today, but I think just to consider the possibility, like to be willing to give oneself permission to consider the possibility that the quote unquote hard stuff, quote unquote bad stuff is, is, is a teacher that it's, that it may actually be one of the languages of grace that, that maybe gets really complicated real quick, but you know, just more basically that the, the materials for, for transformation may be living right inside of us if we have the the space, the courage, the support, definitely the support, the the permission to sort of turn towards them and say, okay, well, what do you have? What what do you have for me here? And and maybe most importantly, like from within a framework that says this is part of the gig, you know, like this is part of being human and and maybe, right? Like we know Christ went to the desert, we know Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and they were faced with all this really hard stuff, right? Power, temptation, lust, greed, whatever. Right. And, and that, that turning towards and being present to that, to that stuff, seeing what's there, you know, not, not drowning in it necessarily, although that may happen at times. Um, that's where self-compassion is, is important. Hmm. Um, but to, to be able to sort of turn towards it and say, okay, this is, this is, this is part of the gig. And I, and I think, you know, just, just as a like basic psychology idea, when we turn towards and begin to, you know, like this systematic desensitization is what's used for certain phobias and stuff like that. When we turn towards and we recognize that wave of fear or panic or shame or whatever else move through us with a little bit of distance. And this takes, this takes skills to do, or it takes the presence of someone else that, that has those skills and can sort of, be with us through it, um, that we can start to change our relationship to that stuff and, and get on that, that path. Um, mm-hmm. because it doesn't really ever end. I don't think there's always, there's always another curveball around. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I sort of rambled there, but that's sort of what, what comes to mind, Jared. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Paul, for coming on. And, and I think this is a, it's, it really is a huge topic that I think is going to be more and more relevant to people as uh, more people continue to go through these faith shifts and start to figure out what it kind of means for them and how they think of themselves and in their, you know, that kind of psychological element. And permission to do something about mm-hmm. it, maybe. Too, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. This was fun. Thank All you, right. Paul. See ya. Yeah. Be well. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Mark and Karen Bower, Jamie Edwards, Andre Morgan III, Drew Nelson, Karen Files, Emma Wyatt, Ryan Bruckner, Sarah Boyd, Meisen Heidelberg, Timothy Rink, Megan Selbach Allen, and Ashley Soto. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, 
be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, community champion Ashley Ward, and web developer Nick Striegel. Copyright 2021, The Bible for Normal People. All rights reserved. In other words, no copying or you're in big trouble. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Uh, can I can I add something to that, Paul? Because I think interrupting no, I, because we're having a conversation here, Jared. Do you know what a conversation <laughs> is? A conversation is when I talk whenever I want to. That's what a conversation is.